Good evening. <laughs> Forgot to press the button. That transmits all the electrons to the recorder. So first of all, I just want to really appreciate uh, everyone's practice. You know, we're right in the middle of the retreat now. And I know... Um, from talking with you one-on-one. -on -one. I know the sincerity of your practice. I know that there have been ups and downs. And um, it's inspiring to uh, do these interviews. I just want to let you know that. So the theme tonight is wisdom. the essence of wisdom is that kind of appropriate response pointed to by that Zen teacher when he gave that answer, appropriate response to the question, what is enlightenment or what is your deepest understanding? Um, if the essence of our practice is appropriate response, It can be helpful to isolate a few components that are necessary for appropriate response. And I often have been thinking the last few years that there's a fairly simple model for how to come to appropriate response moment after moment, which is the essence of our practice. Appropriate response each moment, each moment. So there's, a, there's this quality really of a continual new beginnings that's possible to practice is a quality really of mercy. No matter what's happened in the past, you can always have an appropriate response in the present. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there have been pain, so-called mistakes, uh, difficult backgrounds, and so forth. There can always be appropriate response in the present moment. That is tremendously freeing. Yeah, because you don't have to get things perfect. And you don't have to get rid of everything that happened in the past. You just have to give an appropriate response, meaning what's the best possible response? Not in a comparing sort of way, but just in, a, in the way of using our best uh, wisdom and compassion in the moment. And so I sometimes think of there being these three components of appropriate response. And one is mindfulness, simply knowing what's happening, really crucial, necessary to be able to respond appropriately. We have to know what's happening, as it were, internally and externally. And mindfulness is a core tool. And, you know, we don't go so much into this here, but we can also, I think, understand a mindfulness that goes outward as well, not just the internal mindfulness. We could say that right mindfulness could be, as part of its nature, be called right media. Sort of right, how do you get the right knowledge of what's going on in the world? You have to have right media. A project, <laughs> long term. So uh, 
So here we're especially focusing on more of an internal mindfulness. Uh, so we have mindfulness, it tells us what's happening. We also then on the basis of our mindfulness, just to know, knowing what's happening in the moment, we use our best wisdom and compassion to come up with uh, an intention that comes out of wisdom and compassion. What should I do in the present moment that reflects my best wisdom and compassion? And then we act, then we respond. And sometimes when it's difficult, we have an intention and we don't always respond. So we could see these almost in a simplified way as three aspects of appropriate response. Mindfulness, developing the intention based on wisdom and compassion, and then responding. And in terms of the theme of the retreat, developing clear seeing and cultivating uh, that, uh, that open heart, when we go back to the clear seeing dimension, it's clear that there, in that little formula, there are two aspects of clear seeing. There's mindfulness and there's wisdom. And we could say that those are the two fundamental dimensions of clear seeing. And they're not the same. They're different. Uh, we can have mindfulness without wisdom or compassion. If I'm, I don't know, walking in the middle of, if I'm walking in the middle of the road, feeling the pavement with my feet, hearing sounds, getting louder, <laughs> and I just say, lifting, moving, placing, <laughs> hearing. Hearing is becoming predominant. <laughs> Even a little bit of feeling of vibration in the asphalt. I can be extremely mindful. And not very wise and in fact, I may not have that many more opportunities. <laughs> to develop either in this lifetime, <laughs> if I continue in that way. So we can, we can have mindfulness without wisdom. Or another example might be um, maybe more realistic sometimes. Um, I can be decide, you know, I can have my, I don't know, this is a hypothetical example. Maybe something comes close to it sometimes. I can have my, uh, dear friend or partner in the other room is really, really suffering and really needs me. And I say, it's time for meditation. I have to cultivate mindfulness. <laughs> that might not be so wise or compassionate. That depends a little on circumstances, right? Could be, possibly could be taking care of yourself so you can actually help. But, but we could imagine some cases in which there'd be a kind of self-centered development of mindfulness. We could have a lot of mindfulness, maybe not very compassionate, conceivable. And maybe, maybe sometimes we find ourselves in that way. So it's um, helpful to see that mindfulness isn't the same thing as wisdom. And that um, in 
the text on the foundations of mindfulness, there's the mention of a quality which in Pali is called sampajana, which is usually translated as clear comprehension. It kind of is the wisdom buddy to mindfulness. And clear comprehension is said to ideally go along with mindfulness. And clear comprehension would be the question of, uh, does what I'm doing in the moment really cohere with my larger purpose? Am I skillfully using meditative tools? Am I really seeing clearly? Because I can, and it really, you know, or it might be, um, might be simply raising the question, is this wise right now? I'm being mindful, but I also need that complement uh, of wisdom. Another way that that balance gets expressed is, as we'll explore a little bit more tomorrow morning in the instructions, the fourth foundation of mindfulness involves a kind of stepping back and looking at the patterns of experience a little more fully. The first three foundations of mindfulness give us a way to develop mindfulness of the individual constituents of experience, we might say. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, mindfulness of feeling tone. Then we still need to step back and look at what are the broader patterns of experience. And in the fourth foundation, it actually says, use these frameworks to look more closely at experience. And there are five frameworks given in the fourth foundation. We'll only work with one of them tomorrow morning. But it's, it's really to say, um, look, at, uh, look at your experience, for example, in terms of what leads to suffering or what leads to freedom. Is this pattern involved with suffering? If so, study it. Study how it arises and so forth. Is this pattern conducive to freedom? Know that. Basically to know what's helpful and not helpful when you see patterns. And maybe many of our old patterns, our old habits, often aren't so helpful. They come out of uh, a pastime or useful often when they originated, often in childhood, but not so useful as adults. And the industry of therapy is based on that <laughs> distinction. <laughs> you know, and many of us probably have spent a fair amount of our well-earned fortune to give to therapy. Many of you have earned your living <laughs> that, that way. So, uh, uh, and so I, I also tend to think of the fourth foundation some, as also, it's not there in the teachings of the Buddha, but I tend to interpret it also as understanding not just the more universal patterns of experience, but also my personal patterns. What are, you know, what are my personal patterns by which I get into knots? Mm -hmm. What are some ways that I can let go of those knots to see the bigger picture? Another way of saying that, that's sometimes expressed about the fourth foundation is, Mindfulness is really cool in general, very helpful in general, but it also really helps to know where to look to be mindful. <laughs> that example of uh, being in the road would serve to make that point also, that um, sometimes our mindfulness needs to be directed in a specific focused way towards what's happening with this particular part of our experience. And that's where 
with this fourth foundation, that mindfulness starts to move into wisdom. When we start having that more focused look at the patterns, the four foundations of mindfulness, I think naturally, well, maybe not naturally because it was formed, but in, in the way that it is formed, that uh, there's a sequence which leads from just the cultivation of mindfulness into the wisdom of seeing our patterns, in particular the patterns that lead either to suffering or to freedom, and knowing how to, um, knowing how to act on, on the basis of that, that seeing. In the Thai forest tradition, there's a phrase called satipanya, which is used quite often. I don't think it's in the teachings of the Buddha, but the Thai forest tradition, this beautiful rich tradition, which is one of the um, lineages that inform Spirit Rock, uh, particularly through Jack Cornfield and his background in Thailand, that uh, there's the, that phrase satipanya. Sati means mindfulness and panya means wisdom. And they're conjoined as if they have to be together. So a mature expression of uh, mindfulness would be satipanya. Mindfulness wisdom, it could be called. So not uh, so the, mind, the mature mindfulness in a way that has the wisdom dimension um, there. So what is wisdom? What is this wisdom quality? I think what we find in Buddhist teachings is quite similar to what we find in the other world religions and in some of the great Western philosophers. I think it's pretty similar. What is wisdom? Essentially, it means to know ourselves clearly, to see ourselves in our deep nature, and to see reality clearly. And then to know how to respond to the different situations of life. It's pretty simple. How should I live, in other words? How should I respond to this or that? What's the nature of things? What's my nature? Wisdom lets us have answers to those questions. And I think it's pretty much, it's pretty similar to what you find if you look at Plato or look at uh, wisdom as it's expressed in the Hindu tradition or in uh, um, sometimes in the variants in Christian or Jewish tradition, quite similar. Really has to do with those really, really basic questions. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, those questions are answered in, in a few different ways. Um, sometimes the focus is on the nature of how things appear and the way that our, when we become wise, we tend to see the way that everything is impermanent. No matter what we want or think, everything is impermanent, arising and passing away. Everything is interrelated. The, se the sense of a separate solid self is a fiction. Everything is interrelated. And also, the third characteristic is that nothing in itself is ultimately, will ultimately give us happiness. No thing, no experience, no state of mind in itself will give us happiness. That there's an essential, unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena. That's one way of talking 
about wisdom. In Mahayana traditions, it's often linked with an understanding of what's called emptiness. And emptiness becomes the key to wisdom. Emptiness, very close to that understanding of impermanence and the lack of a solid separate self. Interrelationship, we could say. Sometimes wisdom is understood in terms of the four truths, the teaching of the four noble truths. It's a, it's a predominant way. You know, when we look to uh, the teaching of right understanding or wise understanding, uh, part of the Eightfold Path, it's especially understood in terms, what does it mean to have right understanding, or we could say wisdom? It means to understand the four truths, the four noble truths. Um, the truth that there is suffering, the truth that there's a cause of suffering, the truth that peace and freedom are possible, and the fourth truth that there's a practical way to get there. That's often understanding those four is often taken to be the key to wisdom. And so I want to, for the rest of the talk, use that framework as a way to talk further about the nature of wisdom and to also suggest ways that we can practice to cultivate wisdom. This teaching of the Four Noble Truths is really the um, core teaching of the Buddhist tradition. When we look across traditions, it's what unifies all the different traditions, that understanding. A few years ago, I was invited by some friends who were developing a community in New Mexico. Now I was invited with my friend Diana Winston, whom some of you probably, anyone know Diana? Yeah, so Diana is one of my dear friends and we've taught a lot together. She lives in Los Angeles now. and I think I, maybe I mentioned a few nights ago, she is the director of the director of education now for the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA, which got that $23 million grant to study mindfulness. And she's um, there in the medical school. She's also a spirit rock teacher and um, cur currently finishing a book called The Art and Science of Meditation or Art and Science of Mindfulness. So Diana and I were invited by these friends to go to a um, community that was forming in New Mexico, which was to be, was designed to be a community where people who were Buddhist-based, but across several traditions, were um, wanting to create kind of like a, a little bit like a Buddhist old folks home <laughs> or a Buddhist retirement community. Actually, it's a great idea. Depending on your age, it's a great idea. <laughs> well, it's a great idea to be what there at the right time. It's also a fantastic idea if someone wants to uh, develop that kind of a project because the need is huge and it's only going to grow. <laughs> and so uh, they invited Diana and and myself down to 
I think it was around Silver City, New Mexico, if anyone knows that area, southwest New Mexico, kind of quite, quite beautiful, to be witnesses, uh, really observers for their formation of the community. And they wanted to, they were going to have a small group of people who would have the, uh, basically all of whom would have a lot of experience both with Buddhist teachings and with working with uh, the elderly, several had experience in hospice and so forth. And we went down there and they start, it was supposed to be three days of meetings. And we were, we were, you know, we were I, I don't, I think we were just there just partly just to see New Mexico and have a good time. And, and um, after about half a day, um, there started to be conflicts. <laughs> and we were actually asked, will you facilitate for the next three days? You know, will you be kind of like uh, our facilitators and peacemakers? And we did. Actually, I thought we did a pretty good job and much better than if we had prepared. <laughs> you know. And but one of the first uh, parts of the conflict was that people were from different Buddhist traditions and they didn't know what they, their common basis was. And we spent some time and it became pretty clear after a while that everyone could agree that the Four Noble Truths was at the center of things for them. So first accomplishment, <laughs> you know, and things, things moved on uh, pretty well after that. It's actually, personally, I really like that. I, I do a certain amount at times of mediation and I, I teach actually, teach quite a bit on conflict. And it's, it's actually, I think people with our experience can, can sometimes be quite good at working with conflict uh, and sometimes have an intuitive sense of where the um, mm, resolution is. It's quite interesting. Maybe, I don't know if I'll maybe talk about that later. Uh, but it's quite interesting for me. Um, and um, so very, very central. This is, and the Buddha took it to be the core teaching. It was actually his first teaching that he ever did. His first teaching was the four truths. He talked about the centrality of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Friends, just as the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed by the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant's footprint is reckoned the foremost among them in terms of size, in the same way, all skillful qualities are gathered under the Four Noble Truths. It's a unifying framework that gathers everything. Uh, under which four? Under the Noble Truth of Dukkha or suffering? under the noble truth of the origination of dukkha, under the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, under the noble truth of the path of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. Those are the four, probably familiar to, to most of you in some ways. Interestingly, that model is a very common sense model. It's basically saying, what's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution and how do we get to the solution? Very simple. It's very commonsensical. It was actually based on the model of medical diagnosis at the time of the Buddha, which follows more or less that logic, right? What's the illness? What's the cause of it? What's the remedy? What do we do to get there? What do we, what do we apply? And so forth. And um, it also, in an interesting way, really um, parallels the life story of the Buddha, which I want to explore a little bit, which is quite, 
quite interesting. Um, and in fact, the Four Noble Truths, as I mentioned, is the fruit of the search that led him to, as the tradition goes, to awakening. The Four Noble Truths is the most direct fruit. It's his first teaching. It's his first expression of what this is all about that he, that he, that he gave. So what, what's his story? Many of you know the story in some ways. Maybe there, it's interesting to look at it with different perspectives and maybe look at it in a few different ways. One way to look at the, his story is to see that he was raised in um, comfort. He was a prince. He was uh, the son of royalty. He grew up in what's now part of Nepal, um, was born there, grew up, was um, his parents had received a prophecy that he would either become a great ruler or a great sage. They had a strong preference for the first. (laughs) And they figured that the way that they would ensure the first happening would be to not expose him to the world in any direct way. So he's protected, completely protected. No signs of discomfort or the negative were permitted in the palace. It's a little bit like middle-class United States life. (laughs) Very comfortable, you know. Um, Any problems, just take a pill. I'm making fun of it a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it has some parallels. So there, there was this whole kind of cocoon of comfort that he grew up in. And he lived in a kind, in a kind of state of illusion. And it's really uh, taken that this is our basic state. You know, that the that wisdom is designed to cut through that state of illusion, you know, to, to cut through that quality of not knowing. And the Buddha grew up in that state of not knowing. So his own path was an attempt to cut through illusion. There is a um, powerful statement from one of the great Tibetan teachers of the 20th century, Kala Rinpoche, who pointed to this condition that wisdom meets. He said this, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality, but you don't know it. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality, but you don't know it. And so the quest of wisdom is to find out what's real. So the Buddha was conditioned to be in ignorance and illusion by his very life in ways that have some parallels perhaps to, um, to us. Another way of saying that I think a little more poetic is comes from Rumi, who likens our condition to being in a tavern and not at the beginning of the evening. <laughs> so this is what Rumi says about our state, it's kind of state of ignorance. All day I think about it. Then at nights I say it. 
Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from somewhere else, I'm sure of that. And I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. Two two expressions of our condition. So what happens to the Buddha is that he discovers suffering and the possibility of an end to suffering. Inside the palace, it was forbidden to have any signs of illness or old age or death. And so the Buddha loved this incredibly protected, lived in this incredibly protected world. And it's said, and this is part of the story, almost mythological, it's said that on four successive nights, he left the confines of the palace and went out into the world. And on four successive nights, he met what are called in the story the divine messengers. He met first someone who was old. He met someone who was sick. He met, he saw a corpse. And on the last night, he saw a a mendicant or a yogi. And this totally shook his life. He said, how is there this process of aging and death, of illness and aging and death? Is this where we end up? Is it simply that we have this hard life and then we die and that's it? Is that all there is? Very existential questions. And then you know, we ask those same questions, I'm sure. You know, we struggle in life, and then what's left? Getting older, more likely to get ill, you know? Sometimes, from a certain perspective, it doesn't look so attractive. <laughs> and the Buddha. For the Buddha, it was really like a huge question. What is this? Kind of like Rumi. Where did I come from? What is this about? And so he set off on a quest to try to find answers to these questions and really try to find an answer particularly to the question of suffering. And he met with the best teachers of his time who taught him yogic techniques, for concentration and sort of control over the body. At times he ate very little, engaged in very ascetic practices. If you go to Buddhist countries, you'll sometimes see, as I've seen in Thailand, 
sculptures of the Buddha in his ascetic phase. And some of them, he's like a skeleton. It said that you could press from the front of his belly and feel his spine. He was so thin, didn't eat very much. And this was the course of practice that he was advised to do. And one day, he was sitting on the banks of a river and a cow maid came to him and offered him some porridge, like something almost like oatmeal. And he had a moment of doubt and he, he wondered whether he should uh, accept the food because were he to follow the ascetic practices, he wouldn't have. But something went back in his memory and his memory took him to an experience in which he had had a very pleasant meditative, deeply, deeply pleasant meditative experience in which he had had a lot of insight. And he said to himself, pleasure is not the enemy. The pleasant is not the enemy. And he accepted the porridge. And he later interpreted that as really insight into the middle way, into the middle way where you don't adhere one on one interpretation either to extreme asceticism and repression on the one hand or kind of overindulgence on the other. And my friend and mentor John Travis uh, was in India in the very places where his, the Buddha's story took place. And he said, he, he came, did this, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago. And he came back and he said he had a kind of an insight that has really resonated with me. He said this also represented a kind of balancing in terms of gender, that the kind of the over, the ascetic kind of practices very much dependent on strong willpower. We could say we're kind of hyper-masculine, you know, if, we, if we use that language. We're um, this kind of heroic individual subjugation of the body and, the, and for the sake of spirituality. And this was John's interpretation, at least, which has resonated a lot with me. And he said that in taking the porridge, he was accepting a gift from the feminine and accepting that, and in a sense, balancing himself. And it's interesting that with the Buddha, like Jesus, are kind of androgynous. They bring together what in their cultures were more conventionally both masculine and feminine qualities, like wisdom and compassion. And very interestingly, and this is again John's interpretation, it was very shortly after taking of that porridge, just you know, very short time, that full awakening occurred. As if that integration, you know, I like that interpretation of the masculine and feminine were key to his awakening, were central in some way. And at first he, after his awakening, he said, I'm not gonna teach. It's too simple. This teaching, he said, this teaching is about letting go of attachments. It's simple. People want complicated spiritual systems. They won't believe it, it's too simple. And so he said, I won't teach. I'll just stay in my own awakening. And again, in the story, it said that the 
king of the gods, Brahma, came down and met the Buddha and said, please open the doors of the deathless. There are some with but little dust over their eyes who will understand. And the Buddha said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And taught for 45 years. And his first teaching was the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. He taught it probably shortly after that encounter with Brahma. He taught it was called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma, was the discourse. You can find it in the text. And it was the teaching of the Four Truths. And he taught it to his, um, his former companions, who when they saw him coming, at first said, there's that person, Gotama, who, didn't, who hasn't followed our discipline. Would be what in um, Southern Baptist lingo is called a backslider, <laughs> if anyone knows that. Someone who had left the, the discipline. And they had that view, and they were at first going to shun, shun him. But then they saw... There was a mysterious glow. <laughs> there, he seemed, there seemed to be something that uh, was attractive, that looked good, and, and they said, okay, we'll talk to him. And then they got a sense there was something that had really changed, and they maybe were not as changed. And so he, he then taught them, and they became, in fact, his first disciples. And so... These four truths are probably the basic way that wisdom is expressed. They come directly out of that experience of awakening. And there are very straightforward teachings. There are esoteric teachings in the Buddhist tradition, just like there are in every spiritual tradition. Complicated teachings, esoteric, mystical teachings, paradoxical teachings, teachings that turn your head upside down or give you 16 heads instead of one. You know, and this is a very straightforward teaching. That's why the Buddha said it's so simple. No one will believe me. This is teaching of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of the end of suffering, and the way to get there, the way, the path to the end of suffering. And so we've already looked at the first truth. I'll talk briefly about all of these. We've already looked at the first and second truth. They really come together as a kind of package. Um, We've looked at how in the teaching of the two arrows, which we looked at, um, I think, when I was, what, um, giving some of the instructions, right? That when we looked at that teaching of the two arrows, the idea that, that we're all shot by an arrow of pain and that it's our reaction to what we call pain or the unpleasant that could be represented as shooting a second arrow at ourselves or others. And the Buddha said that the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. And the non-practitioner or ourselves when we're under the influence of conditioning tend to shoot the second arrow and gave examples of that as reacting physically when there's uh, an unpleasant body sensation tensing around it or trying to get rid of it, often by tensing, which actually only increases often the unpleasantness of it. Or the way that we 
react to um, a difficult emotion. You know, maybe by blaming someone else, blaming ourselves, telling a story, going off for long periods of time often, uh, as if it would help us. That's the thing. We tend to almost unconsciously think the second arrow is going to help, but it doesn't. You know, or on a social level, the way that people have conflicts and one side causes pain to the one side and then to the other side and then that side causes pain to the first side. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The Middle East as mutual shooting of two arrows for a long time. You know, of course, it's a complex situation, but in some ways that has some truth to it. You know, and, and actually I believe that, that if we actually took the implications of this teaching and apply it to social reality, it actually goes a long way. And it has been done because I would interpret the traditions of nonviolence as exactly the same teaching. It's like we have received oppression. Think of Gandhi or King. We have received oppression. We have received pain. We will not pass on the pain. The cycle of pain ends with me. It's a radical way to state it. The cycle of pain that has gone on for so long ends with me. And that's their teaching. Not just a personal or psychological teaching, but also a basis for social movements, a basis for relating to the larger world. Same teaching, I believe. I think you can see it's kind of, I think that can be, is pretty clear. And so that, in a way, is another expression of the first two truths. And because I think they come as a package. The first two truths are about suffering and its cause. And the second two truths are about freedom and its cause. It's a simple way to look at those two truths. So we look at the way that there, uh, the first truth is to say there is suffering. And I think it's clear it's not, it's not always clear in the text, but I think in, in interpreting the text, I think it, it's obvious that when we mean suffering, we have to mean that shooting of the second arrow. Because um, on the un- presence of the unpleasant or pain is not the problem. The problem, is, the problem is that we react, we shoot the second arrow. Now, it's also true that with our conditioning, when there is pain, we will tend to shoot the second arrow. That's true. But the Buddha himself had pain. Obviously, a human being, there's pain. There's pain and there's the unpleasant is throughout his life. The Buddha, in his old age, had a bad back. He also sometimes had headaches. You know? and, and yet we have to imagine that he didn't shoot the second arrow a lot because of those uh, physical conditions. So the first truth is the truth of this reactivity. And in a sense, it's not just the presence of the unpleasant that we react to, but also in a broader way, we could say that there's suffering when we grab hold of something, when we grab hold of the pleasant. And it's an interesting way that the first two truths are framed because if you look at the text, it's framed as the first truth is about suffering, which is basically the 
reaction to the unpleasant. And the second truth is framed in terms of grasping, which is a way of reacting to the pleasant. It's interesting, it's kind of an asymmetry, you know, which is interesting that it's taught that way. In reality, I think that both truths involve both the pleasant and the unpleasant. In other words, there's reactivity, there's a kind of suffering. We notice the suffering with the unpleasant, we don't notice it with the pleasant so much. But there's a way that there's a suffering in that we wouldn't be grasping after something if the, if we, if the present was in some sense okay. Remember, meaning grasping, not just choosing, you know, choosing something. The grasping means there's a reactive or compulsive quality. And in a similar way, the second truth is framed as grasping, which we grasp after the pleasant, but also and that's taken to be the cause of uh, suffering. But it's interesting because if we would actually focus on suffering, the cause of the suffering related to the unpleasant isn't grasping, isn't per se grasping after the pleasant, it's pushing away the unpleasant. Are you following me? So it's interesting, you get the parallelism. So it's like he, he found, he basically, my interpretation would be the kind of reactivity that's most easy to see is when we react to the unpleasant and we suffer. And the kind of cause that's easiest to see is when we grasp after the pleasant. Maybe it's a little harder to see how the pushing away of the unpleasant is suffering or is the cause of suffering. But in any case, I think we can understand this as meaning that there's suffering is any kind of reactivity. And the reactivity can involve the grasping or the pushing away. So in a sense, the first two truths are a package and suffering is defined almost in terms of this grasping or pushing away. What's characteristic of the grasping or pushing away is that it tends to be unconscious or semi-conscious. It has a compulsive quality to it. And in the Buddha's more detailed analysis of the causes of suffering, he talks about how there is this basic ignorance, not knowing who we are. Shantideva, the writer who I mentioned uh, last night on the Bodhisattva's life, he has a line where he says, let me see where this is. This entire world is disturbed by, with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. We have a basic, it's this basic quality of illusion. We don't know ourselves. We don't know reality. That's taken to be a root cause. And on the basis of that, we have certain tendencies or habits we could almost call this the unconscious. We have certain tendencies that we have from the past that tend to make us act in certain ways, which are, tend to make us act in ways that will lead to suffering. We have all these habits, reactions from the past, reactions to our own wounded territory you know, that, are, that all of us have some version of. And then the Buddha says, bringing the model further, with a normal body, we have our senses, 
and we have contact with objects. On the basis of that contact, we have a feeling tone arise, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, our friends from this morning. (laughs) Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then because of our ignorance and our habits, we will tend to um, grab hold of the pleasant. First of all, we'll tend to want the pleasant, we'll tend to not want the unpleasant, and then we'll tend to grab hold of the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. And in doing so, we strengthen the habits. We strengthen the patterns. And so how do we intervene? How do we practice with the first two truths? First of all, we learn how to be with suffering. We learn how to be present with it. That's that teaching again of the two arrows. We learn how to be present with the painful or the unpleasant and also the pleasant without being reactive. Crucial part of our training. We learn how to be with the unpleasant when it occurs. And again, we use a guideline in terms of the physical when it's not doing damage. And when we can be relatively mindful and balanced with what's happening. And then we learn how to be with what's unpleasant. We go against our conditioning. We sort of lean in sometimes to what's difficult. And ultimately this is deeply freeing and frees us from suffering. It's ironic. It's very paradoxical. There's a powerful poem. Again, I'm I'm quoting Rumi a lot on this retreat. This is another poem from Rumi. Again, using the terminology of his tradition, God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. Going into what seems unpleasant and you end up with the pleasant. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. It's a strong teaching. It's a strong teaching. And so we enter, we learn to enter in to what's difficult when it arises. We don't go looking for it. <laughs> you know, this isn't masochism. <laughs> you know. It may feel like that at moments. <laughs> But it actually isn't. It's actually a training that lets us go into what's difficult. And then we also can, when there is suffering, we can tune in and ask, is there grasping right now? I'm suffering. Is there grasping? It's a very direct practice. It was actually one of the first practices that I was given by my first teacher, Joseph Goldstein. He said, I want you to 
whenever there's suffering, ask the question, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? He gave me that like my first year of practice. And uh, it was pretty interesting to do that for quite a while. It's a practice you might take yourself just to ask that. And sometimes we can right in the moment say, I'm suffering right now, where's the grasping? It might be very simple. I'm grasping after my experience not being like this. Right? And then moving into the third truth, can I relax and let go? And so a tremendous amount of our practice occurs just in this very simple way. One uh, Tibetan teacher, American teacher, Reggie Ray, who's actually going to be here next week at Spirit Rock, lives in Colorado. He says, the whole of spiritual practice takes place between feeling tone and grasping. The entirety of spiritual practice occurs between feeling tone and grasping. I think you can see why. And so we learn how to let go into the peace, really, of not grasping, of not pushing away. That's the third truth, that it's possible in the fact that, that some kind of deep peace is possible, some kind of deep resting without grasping or pushing away. It's a kind of peace. The Buddha calls it the cessation of suffering. And different traditions label it in different ways. They say it's letting go, or it's peace, or it's um, love, or it's awareness that just lets everything be present. Someone like Neve, you were talking about this morning in the questions that it's this, and many traditions see it that way, it's that ability simply to be present with what's there without reacting. That's a kind of version of this peace that's accessible to us many, many, many moments. Simply the presence without being reactive, without grasping or pushing away in the moment. When we're there, that's the third truth. And of course, it's possible to do that enough moments so that it stabilizes more and more in our experience and becomes what is sometimes said not so much to be an altered state but to be an altered trait, something that, that is stable, that we, that we find that we don't have to try so hard. It just is more who we are. And so in terms of practice, and we'll look more into this tomorrow morning, we could say when we feel that grasping, can I let go of that grasping for pushing away? Can I release it? If I've identified it, can I relax into awareness or relax into peace? And of course, sometimes we can do that in the moment, maybe just with something like my knee is tensing, I'm tensing because I have strong knee sensations. And we can just relax, you know. That's a simple way that this would be expressed. You know, where I can just, you know, I find myself uh, fighting something that's in my experience and I can just say, I'll stop fighting and I'll just be with it, just be present with it. And some, sometimes it's a little more complicated what it means to 
let go or let be or be with something. But this is, this is a way we can um, take this as a practice. And the fourth truth, which I may, may look at a little, little more detail uh, two nights from now, I'll have to, I'll have to see, is the uh, truth of the path to the end of suffering. And this is the, as most of you know, this is the famous Eightfold Path. This is the practical path that is divided into um, training in wisdom, training in meditation, and training in ethics or action, you know, in which the, the two elements of training in wisdom are right understanding and right intention. The training in meditation encompasses right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort, really the effort to be aware. And then the training in the more outward part of our life has to do with right livelihood, uh, right action, which is really about being ethical. And then um, what? Right speech, right? Um, Ways of using speech singled out as a distinct part of the Eightfold Path. And so we may um, work with those. We, We can find, you know, in the concrete situation of a retreat, when we're looking at how to apply the four truths, it might be to say, I feel some grasping, I feel, you know, and I feel the kind of a knot here. I feel grasping, I feel, feel a kind of compulsive pushing away. I want to let go. I want to get to that piece, but I don't quite know how to do it. What tools can I call upon? And then we can start using the tools of our retreat, the different tools of mindfulness, the techniques, the techniques of metta, the perspective, maybe reflect on some of the wisdom teachings. And that's really the Eightfold Path in practice. You know, what it's really in practice, it would be to say, how can I use the tools at my disposal to get towards this letting go? And we can do it in the moment, really. You know, it might take the form of simply giving myself a pep talk, right, about the situation right now. And it's really the, you know, it's the application of the perspectives and tools that we've been learning in the moment, especially to help us let go. That would be how we apply it in the moment experientially. And then there's also the way that we cultivate this path more as a training that we continually train in these aspects. So that in a way that, as we've said a few times, so that when the tools need to be used, there we were skillful at using them, or another metaphor, when we need the resources, they're well-developed. You know, they're not going to be well-developed unless we practice. And so it's kind of those two meanings of the path, both of the path, both something that we can apply in the moment, and then the long-range development of those resources. So I think I'll close by um, talking about two further aspects of wisdom that I think are um, important just to notice as, you know, in kind of completing the sense of the nature of wisdom. The most direct expression of wisdom is the understanding of the four truths and how to apply it in one's life. It's the central core teaching of the Buddha. It goes a, a long, long way. We don't need to know all the subtleties necessarily 
of emptiness, dependent, arising, all these complicated ideas of the interpenetration of the different elements of reality and so forth. We just need, it's really kind of a very simple teaching and it goes um, very far. The Buddha was once, once said, he said, here in my hand, I have a few leaves. Tell me, O monks and nuns, are there more leaves in my hand or in the whole forest? And they said, there are more leaves in the forest. <laughs> said, good, correct. <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think anyone complained and said, Buddha, you're always asking us these dumb questions. <laughs> Make us look bad. And he said, no, I think they probably never said that. But, but, but he, um, he answered in that way. And then he said, just so. The amount of leaves that I have in my hand are equivalent to the teachings that are enough for your liberation. And the leaves that are in the forest are equivalent to what the wisdom and knowledge is that's in the mind of a Buddha. These handful of leaves are what you need for liberation. It's not everything that I could teach maybe but it's adequate for freedom. And so it's, it's this very simple aspect of, of wisdom that as we also then connect it in its maturity with the qualities of compassion, we find that mature expression of wisdom. And so I think I'll, I'll close. There's a very sweet reading that is again from this book, The Book of Qualities by Ruth Gendler. And it's interesting because it, she personifies wisdom. And again, maybe along with this theme of the balancing of the masculine and feminine, it's quite interesting that in, in many, many traditions, wisdom is feminine. You know? I don't know if that's true in our culture, kind of wisdom is like the male scientist or something, I don't know, maybe. Um, but in her book, Wisdom is, is a Woman, and I was also thinking that in Western philosophy, which is, uh, wisdom is Sophia. And the very name of philosophy means love of wisdom, love of Sophia, you know, and there are many churches and temples, I think in Turkey, the great temple called the Hagia Sophia, you know, for, for, for wisdom. And in the Buddhist tradition, in the Mahayana tradition, the Prajnaparamita, we have in, in the downstairs hall, the female figure next to the Buddha that many of you probably think is just Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Buddha or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually Prajna Paramita who is the perfection of wisdom and it's a woman. The perfection of wisdom is a woman known to be in the tradition as the mother of all the Buddhas. It's interesting. So here is um, 
Ruth's very kind of down-to-earth portrayal of wisdom. And I'll close with this. Wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the thing she is looking at and sometimes the thing she is looking at enters through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. Just sit for a minute or two. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at and sometimes the thing she is looking at enters through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. Thanks again for your really warm and kind attention, which I can feel. And 